So we are, uh, we're, I'm going to get into Laodicea, which is what your handout is, but before we jump into that, last time we got, we met, we were dealing with the Philadelphian church age, and I got all of your outline in, but I had a few other things I was going to share that weren't in your outline. Uh, before we do that, let's look back in our text in Revelation chapter 3, and uh, just kind of walk back through these, uh, these two churches and see how far we can get tonight. So Revelation chapter 3, verse... Uh, in verse, not seven, um, yeah, it is seven, seven, starting in a Revelation 3, seven, says, Into the angel of the church of in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works, behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast little strength. And has kept my word, and has not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will I will uh, make them come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee, because thou hast kept the word of my patience. I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Behold, uh, that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go uh, no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven uh, from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Uh, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. All right, so we ended last week. We completed our outline, and well, the week before last, so you've slept since then. And uh, we've uh, completed our outline. Hey, Nick, I was just talking about you. And good, it was good gossip on Nick and J- Jason. So, um, <clears throat> so we ended that outline, and uh, we'll jump to the Laodicean church next. Um, and just by way of introduction, let's read that from 14 through 22. It says, And under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, These saith the Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see." As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am sat down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. All right, so... Um, these are the. This is the final church of Laodicea, and uh, that's the age that you commonly hear us talking about, and that we live in. So, do we lose the back one? Okay. And so, uh, before we jump into Laodicea, I just wanna, I want to. I felt a little bad because uh, there's so much, as I mentioned in Philadelphia. Once you get past, well, once once you get to the printing press, there's a lot more history recorded, right? So. Uh, prior to that, everything was handwritten or, or uh, moved from, you know, audibly. Um, and so there's a lot that we didn't touch on. And that's okay because we're just doing a a kind of a, 
overview, and a lot of what we're doing is, is tracing the main players of church history, because ultimately it does conclude, <clears throat> uh, at least um, the times of the Gentiles concludes at the second coming of Christ, and then you have a thousand-year reign of Christ, so human history is kind of wrapped up there before you go into eternity future, at least at, in this age. And so, um, so Christopher Columbus uh, was, uh, what we were talking about, uh, not Christopher Columbus, but how after the Crusades and the Inquisition, the Catholic Church was still set on taking their religion to the end of the earth. And, um, and so there's, there was a movement, uh, but the, the, how the Bible believers really kind of took advantage of the opportunity. And really the modern missions movement began in the Philadelphian church age. And so I didn't have time. We mentioned some names um, in our notes, and we really didn't mention a lot of them. Um, and there's a, there's a lot that we could study. I think I rattled a few off. Um, we had groups that we mentioned on on uh, on point number on, on point number two. Uh, uh, oh wait, I was I'm in Sardis. No wonder that doesn't make any sense. All right, I'm like what? All right, so here we go. Yeah, there's a long list of names. That's what I was looking for. There's a long list of names that we just kind of glossed over, and uh, there, we could probably you know multiply that by many many more. Um, and, and those are all worthy, each one of those, of studying. But um, I want to just hit a couple, a couple things that were going on that I didn't get into that are kind of encouraging. Um, you know, I think you guys, many of you know, the Church of England officially started in 1534 uh, when the Parliament passed two acts which set aside the authority of the Pope and declared the king uh, or queen of England as the supreme head of the Church of England. And uh, it's very it's famous with King Henry VIII, of course. He wanted to divorce his wife. So that wasn't a very noble thing. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was not noble at all. But yet God used it <clears throat> to break England away from the power of Rome during the Philadelphian Church Age. And uh, so uh, Catherine was his brother's wife, and he was forced to marry her when he took the throne at 18. She was also the daughter of Isabella, Queen of Spain. So they had kind of married Spain together, and he wanted the divorce because Catherine had not given any sons, and all but one daughter died. So the Roman church wouldn't grant the divorce, so Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop Bishop of Canterbury, annulled the marriage, and uh, Henry married Anne uh, Boylan, or Bolin, Anne Bolin, I should say, and uh, in 1533, and most of you have heard about that. So Anne also did not give Henry a son, and she was eventually beheaded for unfaithfulness in 1536. What a nice guy King Henry VIII was. So through these two marriages, there were two daughters and that reigned in England, um, Mary, right, Bloody Mary, uh, and Elizabeth, who is the good Queen Bess. So you have Mary and Bess, and with these changes, the Church of England was separate from the Roman Church, but the doctrines didn't change immediately. They still hold on, held on, and still hold on, but they held on to many of the same teachings and the Mass. Mary was pro-Roman, and when she became Queen, she tried... Uh, to do undo, uh, try to undo everything that her father had done, setting up the Church of England during her reign, she was over. Uh, she uh, uh, she had over three hundred heretics burned at the stake. So if you didn't go along with Queen Mary, uh, that's why she's called Bloody Queen Mary. You got executed. Um, and then um, um, the most famous are, are Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. Now, I alluded to this last week, or two weeks ago, I should say. 
because personally, if you get, if you, how many of you read Fox's Book of Martyrs? I'm just kind of curious. So, so probably 50% of us have. So if you've never read Fox's Book of Martyrs, it's, it's a work, John Fox uh, lived at this time period. So he was, lived in the 1500s. He had a really difficult time even getting that book completed and published. And so, um, because nobody, they didn't want him to finish it and they didn't want to publicize what was going on, but he did finally get it done. Um, and so he was a contemporary of these guys that I'm getting ready to talk about, Ridley uh, and um, Hugh Latimer. But the thing about these guys, they are so encouraging. When you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, it is so encouraging just to see the stories and, to, and just to see people who stood for their faith. And yet, I will tell you this about that, and you need to be aware of this historically. Uh, you know, Hugh Latimer and, and Ridley were burning people like us at the stake before, uh, before everything turned. So they were happy uh, when the Church of England was in power to, if you weren't part of the Church of England, uh, there was no such thing as separation of church and state. So if you raised your hand and said, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't agree with that. I, I don't think that's what the Bible's teaching. And you say, I don't think the Archbishop of Canterbury is correct. Uh, you, you're going to get killed because you're you're, you are against the king as far as they're concerned. There was no liberty there. So the, there's a lot of Bible believers, Waldensians and Lollards, that uh, were executed uh, by these very people that ended up themselves getting executed. And they were faithful, and they were born again. Um, and so it's like John Calvin. A lot of people today love John Calvin, but what they don't know is that he he was a he did because it was a uh, Geneva was a church state, right? He was the he was not just the church leader; he was the the magistrate over Geneva. Um, people that believed in uh, individual soul liberty were executed. I mean, he he publicly wanted them out. He definitely didn't want them in Geneva. And, uh, and he sought them out and executed them as heretics. And so, and so you didn't dare say, well, wait a minute. I don't think you see sovereignty right. <laughs> so you'd be, you'd be gone. So um, anyway, so uh, that just gives you a little bit of reality to what was going on in those days. Conversely, part of that was because a lot of the Anabaptist types that believe the word of God like we do, were the, 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 we were the firing pin. Of, of the Reformation. There's tons of evidence of that. Uh, Waldensians, uh, Albigensians, uh, Huguenots, people like that that were fleeing, running all over Europe, um, uh, you know, trying to find freedom, preaching on the streets in England, so on and so forth. Home Bible studies, if they had a Bible, all of that. And so, uh, so that was going on, which brought a lot of the revival that there was. And one of the ways that the Romans or the, uh, the Protestants got a little relief was at least if they could agree with Rome on some of these heretics that then together that, you know, then they could give each other a little space. And so, um, so anyway, a little bit of, I didn't have all that written down, but I just kind of, kind of put that in context. I did not know that for years. So I would, there's all these, uh, these, all these reform guys that, uh, you know, I, I always looked up to, I thought, man, how incredible. And I still do. I think their faith was incredible. And God has a way of, you know, saying, hey, how do, you t how, how do you like that now that the shoe's on the other foot, you know? And so they were humble men by the time it was over. But uh, at the end of the day, um, um, you know, it is, when you look at church history, it is just not clean and crisp and nice and neat. Um, it is a bloody mess. And so um, the, the fame of these two guys, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, uh, Ridley was a chaplain for Henry the the Eighth. Of course, we know Henry the Eighth. He wasn't doing a very good job because Henry the Eighth was a certainly a lost man. 
uh, and a bishop of London for Edward Latimer. Uh, he also became an influential preacher under the reign of Edward. After Mary became queen, she had them arrested on October 16th of 1555, and they were burned at the stake. So as Ridley was being tied to the stake, he prayed, O Heavenly Father, I give unto thee my uh, most hearty thanks that thou hast called me to be a professor of thee, even unto death. I beseech thee, Lord God, have mercy on this realm of England and deliver it from all her enemies. And uh, Latimer, who died first, encouraged Ridley as he died, saying, Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day uh, light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust never shall be put out. So these men were, man, they were amazing, and uh, they were happy. Well, uh, Latimer was super re- ready to go to, the, go to the stake and be burnt. Uh, if you read the account in Fox's Book of Martyr, um, it's my recollection that uh, Ridley was a little bit more reticent. You know, he was having a, a crisis of confidence there toward the, toward the end, but God got him through it. So the Puritans were the reformers in England, and they wanted to purify the Church of England. The Puritans were the ones that came to the New World on the Mayflower, which you guys are familiar with. And it's the history of the Puritans in the Massachusetts Bay Colony uh, that did not believe in religious tolerance, okay? So, and they killed those that believed differently. So the actions of the Puritans is one of the reasons that Roger Williams founded Rhode Island uh, with freedom of religion, because he escaped. Uh, you also, of course, have Martin Luther, who was a huge influence in England, uh, or in, I'm sorry, in Europe, through Germany, uh, he was a lawyer, and most of us know a little bit about Martin Luther. He lived from 1483 to 1546. So just as the Gutenberg press was coming out, you know, he was coming up, and he definitely got, became born again. And, and, uh, and uh, of course, you go the, the, he had the 95 Thesis that he posted on the church door in Wittenberg in, in uh, October 31st of 1517, and uh, it just blew up. It blew, the, it blew Rome up big time, uh, and they were going to try to execute him, but he escaped, and um, and so uh, the problem, Luther did really well at first, but everything kind of went back um, as uh, even before he died, he kind of migrated more, a little bit more back to uh, Rome and uh, the Eucharist. And again, to give, you, to give these guys a little bit of grace, they were trying not to get, you know, you got to take in consideration the Pope had complete control of the armies of that time. I mean, I will, I will say, though, the Hessites, the Hussites, I should say, uh, the Hessians, as you guys know, the German uh, troops that ended up, you know, in the, in, the, in the American Civil War, we fought against Hessians, which are German mercenaries. Um, a lot of those guys withstood Rome. They were, they were the, one of the first mechanized armies. They put uh, archers on, um, on uh, wagons, and they just blew the Romans away. The Roman, not, not the Roman, but the, the, the armies that the Rome, Rome paid for to keep those guys in check in Bavaria. They showed up. And uh, with mechanized armies, they'd never, they'd never seen such a thing and uh, just ran circles around them, literally, and destroyed them. So, um, so there was a lot going on during this time period between Germany and, uh, and Rome and Italy. And so, <clears throat> so things went and migrated back. Uh, but the good, one of the good things is that he did translate the German Bible uh, from the Greek text that uh, Erasmus had. So... Uh, he had a better uh, German Bible than they than they started with, and then you had uh, which was only in Latin because you couldn't have it in your own language. So, uh, so he got the Bible into the German uh, language at that time, and then you had Zwingli, another guy who I just I, when you study his life, outstanding guy. There's a lot written about Zwingli, um, uh, Ulrich Zwingli, because 
he again was a guy who came, he came out of Rome. Uh, when you read Zwingli's uh, doctrinal statements, you would think he was a Baptist. I mean, right down the line. I mean, more than just solo scriptura, which is, you know, scripture only, which all of them, the reformers held to, which was a good thing. Um, he was baptism initially. Uh, he was all about even, I think, biblical baptism. Somewhere he dropped the ball on that and went back to uh, infant baptism and then started, uh, uh, because of the pressure of Rome uh, in Austria, he ended up, um, you know, uh, agreeing uh, with uh, Calvin and, uh, and even the Romans, uh, the Pope, that the, the Baptist dunkards, people who dunked by immersion, should die. So he started drowning people, his own friends, uh, people that helped him in his theology. He ended up uh, putting stones around their neck and dropping them in the river in Austria. So what a great guy he was. Uh, he ended up dying in battle fighting Rome, literally. So they came in to put him in check, and he went out to battle and died in battle. So, um, uh, But really, uh, other than the negative parts I just brought up, um, he was quite a guy. <laughs> so um, He was appointed the parish priest of uh, Glarus in 1506. He attained a proficiency in Greek and Hebrew, and so he studied the Greek text of Erasmus. He was one of the best Greek scholars north of the Alps, <clears throat> and in 1516 he moved to uh, Insulin, where he increased his reputation as in his teaching. 1519, he almost died from bubonic plague. Um, and uh, after that, he had a religious zeal. And in 1521, he studied the writings of Luther, who was preaching salvation by grace through faith alone. Uh, and so uh, Luther got saved, no doubt. And so his reformist views were not based upon the need for salvation, as were Luther's, but were based upon the conviction that only the Bible... Uh, evangelically interpreted was binding on Christians. So he believed that the local assembly of believers under the sole lordship of Christ and divinely inspired scriptures that bear witness to redemption through him. So he wrote uh, 67 brief articles, uh, which I'm not going to get into, but, uh, well, I will. I'll touch on some of them. Um, The gospel derives no authority from the church. Salvation is by faith alone. Denying the sacrificial character of the mass denying salvation by good works, denying the value of saintly intercession, denying the binding character of monastic vows, and denying the existence of purgatory. So, I mean, he was just shooting off all kinds of, of uh, theological truth uh, that uh, Rome was not happy with. So, um, by civil law, uh, Zurich, which is where he was, became uh, Protestant in 1525 and removed relics and statues from churches and banned the mass. Eventually, many other cantons came under the influence of Zwingli's teaching, and some extent, um, they are still divided in Austria to this day over uh, the influence of Zwingli. So that's amazing. And then, of course, many of you know John Calvin. I'm not going to... He introduced Tulip. Uh, um, Won't get too far into him, but he studied Luther. Uh, He was a lawyer. Uh, He had a sudden conversion, probably born again. Uh, his goal was to build a model Christian community in Geneva. He did not understand the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, of course. And uh, he studied, really what he did is he just took Augustine's work and brought it forward, claimed it as his own. And uh, and that's where you get Tulip to this day, uh, the total depravity of man, which isn't just a depravity. It's like you're so lost you can't get saved uh, you know, you don't, have no, you don't even have a mind and a will to get saved, which uh, is not biblical. Uh, unconditional election, which God chooses to save people unconditionally. And, uh, th- and if they're not chosen on that basis, then it's merit. 
And so he kind of twists that around a little bit too. Limited atonement, that's the biggest one that just blows my mind, that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross was only uh, given for those who, who he would redeem. So uh, because he predestines people to um, eternal life, then therefore, because he's sovereign, he's good, and he's God, he predestines people to um, eternal death. That's what a true Calvinist believes and teaches. So the atonement, therefore, wasn't, it was limited, because if it was not limited, everyone would be saved because Jesus died on the cross. Because they don't really acknowledge free will, um, that's the kind of the, the mental gymnastics conundrum you get into when you're applying Plato instead of the Word of God and what's clearly taught in the Bible. And then ir- there's irresistible grace. So that's basically the same theology that Plato would have towards Zeus, this all-powerful God that he picked the winners and losers, sort of like Marxism. But anyway, that's another story. So, uh, <clears throat> But anyway, he picks the winners and losers. God picks the winners and he w- picks the losers. And because you're so depraved, you have no bearing on it. And you, you're the, your heart condition, if you get saved, is just because God sovereignly did that in your heart. And you're just like a, you're just a piece of dirt, and you have no will of your own. And so, that's that's baloney, by the way. Uh, irresistible grace. When God has chosen you to save someone, He will, and uh, and and you can't do anything about it. So you can't deny that either. So your free will is shot there. Um, and then the perseverance of the saints, which kind of undermines every other point that is already given, um, that those people God chooses cannot lose their salvation. Now, now he didn't define it as tulip, but when you boil it down, this is what is is come to. It's a it's a synthesis of everything that Calvin taught, and, and uh, those people God chooses cannot lose their salvation. They will continue to believe. If they fall away, it will be only for a time. Now, we at Heartland Baptists in general would be, if in a theological realm, typically would be considered Calvinists. Isn't that crazy? Because uh, we believe in eternal security. And uh, all of those things, which that's what a Calvinist believes. If God saves you, you're not going to be lost because he saved you. And, uh, and that's true. Once you're saved, you're saved. You're not gonna, you can't be unborn. But, um, but the more you dig into Calvinism, it's really philosophy. It's not theology. It's not, biblically doc- it's not biblical doctrine. It's a philosophy. So you can see, and I told you that uh, you know, it's right on time, too, in the 1500s. So he lived to 1564. Um, it was right at the end of that, right in the in the 1600s, 1700s, uh, Euro- European Enlightenment, Darwin, all those guys started coming out, and uh, and so man's philosophies and mindset starts to replace the authority of the Word of God, and so uh, today, <clears throat> you know, nobody, I wouldn't say nobody, but many people that give the Bible no opportunity uh, at all. So there's a lot I could say about those. I, I'm not going to do a class on that. That's a whole night to itself. And the Anabaptists were, uh, throughout all of that time, um, you know, they were dissenters by the authority. They were considered dissenters, um, <clears throat> and they were called Anabaptists because they would not accept the baptism of children and required that those who were converted to be rebaptized. Zwingli opposed them, uh, called the Swiss Brethren in Zurich, uh, but was unable to win them from their position. They refused to have any part of the state-run churches, such as uh, Luther and Zwingli's church, in 1526, uh, the Zurich Council ordered Anabaptists drowned in a cruel parody of their belief. So if you held to that uh, opinion of uh, water baptism by, you know, the, uh, with the ability to make a decision, not just infant baptism, um, then you would be drowned yourself. And in 1529, the Diet of Spire in 1530, 
At the Diet of Augsburg, Roman Catholic and Protestants alike applied the Roman law of heresy against them, so membership in any Anabaptist group was punishable by death. Uh, and by the way, a diet is a formal general assembly. So when they said, like, Luther's going to the Diet of Worms, it's just a, general, a formal general assembly of princes or states of the Holy Roman Empire. So in Austria and in Bavaria, these laws were carried out with uh, great severity. So during all of that, in the midst of all of that, your Bible's being translated. And so we had those seven translations we touched on, Wycliffe, um, and, uh, and, and of course, I've mentioned Erasmus very, uh, several times. He wanted to correct the errors in the Latin Vulgate, so he published a Greek and Latin parallel edition of the New Testament. He was the first Latin text in, in more than a millennia that was not, uh, not the Latin Vulgate. His Greek text became the standard text used by Luther to translate the German Bible and used by the translator of the English Bibles. It's referred to as the Textus Receptus. Now, Erasmus was a Roman Catholic, but still the Greek text was the, uh, was the pure word or, and becomes the, text, the TR is what the King James Bible was uh, translated from. Of course, in 1536, uh, actually, um, <clears throat> Tyndale was burned at the stake for translating the Bible in English. Um, you know, Wycliffe in 1384 translated from the Latin Vulgate. So there was a Bible in, in Old English in 1384 translated by uh, John Wycliffe. And, of course, there's still Wycliffe Bible translators. And, uh, and it was a spark to reform the, the church there in England. Uh, and then when you add the Gutenberg Press, uh, and then in, when Till, Tyndale comes along, he gets a hold of Erasmus's Greek text and pretty much single-handedly uh, translates the Bible. Uh, into the into uh, the Tyndale Bible, <clears throat> there was some purification that went on. But before he died on the stake, his prayer was, "O Lord, open the King of England's eyes." And then in 1535, the Coverdale Bible came out. Miles Coverdale and John Rogers continued the work of Tyndale and completed the translation of the Old Testament into English and printed the complete English edition, which was followed by Matthew's Bible. Uh, John Rogers, uh, whom uh, used the pseudonym Thomas Matthews. Uh, translated a new English Bible directly from the Greek and Hebrew. So it was a straight, um, a straight uh, translation from the Greek and Hebrew. And then in 1539, there was a fourth purification. Miles Coverdale was hired by the Archbishop of Canterbury to publish a Bible for public use, and it was distributed to, to every church in England and chained to the pulpit. So anyone could read that was able to read was able to read it for themselves. Uh, if one was literate, a reader would be provided so that you could hear the Word of God in their own language, and it was called the Great Bible because of its size. It was huge. And so uh, then there was the Geneva Bible, which was the fifth purification in 1560. When Bloody Mary began the persecution of the Reformers in England, many of them left and went to Geneva, which had become a, a refuge for the persecuted church. So that included Miles Coverdale, John Fox, who I mentioned earlier, who wrote Fox's Book of Martyrs, John Knox, uh, the uh, Catholic priest who is, uh, you know, credited in large part for starting the Presbyterian uh, faith there in uh, Ireland and S Scotland. The Geneva Bible was the first to add the verses and the numbers. You know that? There wasn't verses and numbers until 1560. We look at that and think, oh, that's always been there. No, it wasn't. Not until 1560, there weren't any verses and numbers there. So when I, I, I point out, if you don't believe in preservation, which most uh, text, most scholars don't, most 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 Christians today don't believe in preservation. But if you do believe in it, like I do, that's why I'll point out certain things like certain verse numbers and stuff like that seem to line up oftentimes in, uh, you know, number 13 or number 7 or whatever, 40. 
um, whatever. And uh, of course, that didn't; those weren't introduced until um, until that time. So you're talking, um, you know, a long time after the the, the, the first century Bibles. They were just letters re- rewritten, rewritten. Now, I believe God added the verse numbers uh, because it's getting ready to go to the world, and the English language was going to be the language to get it there. Um, and I don't say that because I'm British. I'm an American, so I don't have any pony in that game. But um, anyway, so it also contained the marginal notes and extensive cross-references. A lot of people really love that, that, uh, that Geneva Bible. A lot of the, a lot of the uh, Puritans held to that, and so they didn't really want to let go of uh, of it for the King James Bible, but eventually the King James won out. Um, the Bishop's Bible was the Sixth Purification. Uh, it was just a revision of the of the Great Bible, uh, and so uh, it was very popular. The Dewey Reams Bible was the Catholic Church's answer to that. Um, I still call the, whatever the versions it. I forget the, na- the name of it now. The Catholic Church uses, but it's totally critical text. Um, I still call it the Dewey Reams Bible because that's basically what it is. And then, of course, in 1611, you have the seventh final English uh, purification of the, <coughs> of the Word of God in English, which becomes the authorized version. Authorized in 1604, uh, Protestant clergy approached the king with a request to replace the Great Bible. And then over 50, um, 50 scholars worked from 1605 to 1609 to translate the various parts of the Bible, comparing the different English, Greek, and Latin, uh, German translations and I should say Spanish, I think, as well, to get, which would be Latin-based, to get the most accurate words. In 1610, the first edition went to the press, and in 1611, the first Bibles came off the presses. In the early editions, uh, there was spelling errors in Ruth uh, 315 when, she was, when uh, she was accidentally printed as a he. Um, they, were, they were called either he or she Bibles for a time until the mistakes were corrected, and the King James was the first to be printed in normal-sized personal edition. So they were huge before that. You've seen those really ornate pictures and stuff. So the King James, like kind of like this, I doubt if it was this small, but this is a, like I use an Oxford-wide margin. That came from the guys at Oxford. There's Oxford, Westminster, and Cambridge where the uh, scholars met and they translated the Bible. So like in mine, the notes in the middle are the translator notes. And so that's what I use in my margin. Um, and so you can kind of see what they were thinking. But at any rate... Um, and so um, the, uh, the King James has been revised several times in history to correct the standardized grammar and spelling. And today there are two revisions that are published, the Oxford edition of 1762 and the Cambridge edition of 1769. And you can tell the difference by the word spirit in Genesis 1-2. If the spirit is capitalized, then it's an Oxford. If it's not cap- capitalized, it is a Cambridge. So I'm an Oxford man myself. Okay, so... Um, the founding of the United States is important in all of this discussion as well. I didn't really, I lightly touched on it, but I ran out of time. So I want to just touch on that as well before I jump into Laodicea. Because really, Laodicea is going to, when we think of Laodicea, we look at that as a lens from an American perspective. But you got to kind of, when you look at Philadelphia, you kind of look at it from a Eurocentric perspective. Though a lot of these same things were already going on in Asia and other places. So when you look at church, I had the privilege of, teaching church history, or the seven churches anyway, and in, in, in hitting on church history in, in Asia. And so I was able to find some resources and study church history in Asia. And in a broad sense, a lot of the same patterns are there. So praise God, um, you know, that's all, that's all there. God is doing the same thing 
around the world. So as this is going on in English, as this process, the Gutenberg Press, the Bible's being translated, that was not happening in a, in a vacuum. That was happening everywhere, right? The, this Latin, um, um, oh gosh, uh, um, I forget his name, um, Rena Valera, one of those. Those guys, uh, I think it was Rena, was uh, translating in Spanish. And, and then there's others working the Portuguese language and others working all these other languages. And, and God is bringing these words forth. And, of course, in, in the English, that's why we always say in the English language, I, I can't speak for any other language. I don't know what God has provided there or not. But I know that he's always been, uh, he's, he's, he's getting his word where it needs to go and he's purifying it. And, uh, and so from all of that, uh, the founding of the United States comes forth, the colonial America. Of course, you're, most of us are familiar with that. And Jamestown was settled by Anglicans <clears throat> during the Philadelphian church age. Um, and they settled in uh, a new land and brought them their, they brought their old ways. They still persecuted those who were not members of their churches. So if you weren't part of the, uh, the Church of England, you were not welcome. Uh, Plymouth was settled by Puritans. Uh, so they wanted to escape the religious persecution, of course. That's why they came here. But because of their own intolerance, they, they persecuted others. So the Salem Witch Trials are an example of that. When they set up their local governments, um, the right to vote uh, was given to members of the Puritan churches only. And, of course, Roger Williams fled from that. Uh, Rhode Island was settled by Baptists. So there are, this is where Roger Williams comes in. He studied to be an Anglican minister at Cambridge, but soon adopted separatist views, which meant he turned to the Bible. And he went to Boston and then Plymouth, where he preached for several years. In 1635, he was called to preach at Salem. And within six weeks, he was ordered out of the territory because he held up uh, or because he upheld the Indians' ownership of the land and separation of church and state and government should have no authority over persons' religion. So all of those were just uh, untenable. And in 1636, he bought land from the Indians because he was himself um, being persecuted. And, uh, and founded Providence, and he founded the First Baptist Church in America in 1639, which is still operational this day. Uh, and all the 12 members were rebaptized. So in uh, Pennsylvania, which is where my beloved wife's from, that was settled by the Quakers. And, of course, the Quakers first settled in Boston in 1656, uh, but they weren't welcomed there by the Puritans because of their ideas of separation of church and state. So Pennsylvania was started by William Penn in 1681, uh, when he had, was given the land to pay off a debt to Penn's father, Penn made the colony an asylum where the oppressed of any faith might find refuge. So many of the Quakers settled there, as well as Mennonites, Amish, Moravians, Lutherans, Presbyterians. And so Pennsylvania kind of became a, a, a place where you could go to and get some religious freedom and some tolerance. A lot of people to this day don't really realize during the colonial period, um, there was a lot of religious persecution happening especially among Baptists. Uh, and so during the first century of colonial America, the religious foundation began to crumble, and that's why they needed a revival. So George Whitfield, who I mentioned as well, he was born in England, and I don't, I'm not going to get into all the details. I touched on him um, a while back, but he had a major conversion, and though he, he kind of remained Protestant, he was a, he was a force. And uh, for time's sake, I'm just going to just say this. Uh, he, made, he made trips to America... Uh, that were so impactful that the whole, I mean, it really was had a lot to do with the Great Awakening and eventually the American Revolution. So I'll just leave it at that for time's sake. His buddies, uh, George and Charles Wesley, were against him. Um, he used to work, he, 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 they were all three friends at um, 
at Oxford where they had a club called the Holiness Club, and they were very ascetic in the way they operated. They, would, they were all about fasting and praying and trying to earn God's favor, and uh, the Wesley boys were sons of an Anglican priest. And uh, finally, George was the first out. George Whitfield was the first guy out and said, I can't do this. I cannot, I can't, I'm not getting anywhere with God, you know. So he got saved. He eventually got saved by grace through faith and uh, got on fire. And he came, and the, the Methodists had already been to America, and they said, America is so rotten. They went to Georgia, got ran out. Uh, they were like, this place is so wicked and rotten. There's no hope for it. These people are just, they're just horrible. Well, because they're coming with a gospel of good works. And it just fell flat. Well, George Whitfield comes with the gospel of grace. And man, I mean, and don't get me wrong. You go read George Whitfield. He was definitely preaching, preaching hard. I mean, preaching against sin. But compared to what the, it wasn't about reformation. It was about transformation through Jesus Christ. And man, guess what? Whitfield, he just blew the place up. And so guys like Jonathan Edwards and, and guys like that uh, were also preaching. So God had a revival. Not to mention there were places like Pennsylvania uh, where freedom was starting to bring freedom in Christ. And so all of that was just percolating uh, to bring what would eventually become uh, an American revolution. Uh, whether, you know, the Illuminati started it or not or whatever, God used it. So uh, from that became the missions movement, which is where I'm going. So this revival started a missions movement. A lot of people don't think, when we think, think of the colonies and we think of America, we think of America as America, like we are Jerusalem. But when you look at it from the church history perspective, they saw us as the savages. I mean, everything over here, this was the mission field. Uh, they were coming. A lot of times, David Brainerd went out to reach American Indians. Um, this place was, uh, this. I, I, I read a biography about John Edwards, and so this was just a few years ago. And in my mind's eye, because I'd always learned about Jonathan Edwards, and I'd read little snippets of Jonathan Edwards' life and kind of the highlights when you really dig into this guy's life, it's amazing. I'm like, this guy was living in a village. He had the same opportunity to be a John Calvin, even come from the same theological background, but he refused to do that. Uh, and, and on his average day, in addition to studying for hours on end, making sure that they had food for their village, they also had to make sure they didn't get attacked by American Indians, um, um, you know, because they were, they were at war, French-Indian War. Uh, you know, they were living in the in a pioneer kind of setting. They didn't have modern conveniences, so they had to provide everything for themselves. I look at everything that these guys got accomplished and the, the, the stress of daily life. You know, he died from getting, I, I don't mean to cause it, I don't want to, this is, this is true, and I'm not bringing it up because of our current situation, but he died from getting a vaccine, and uh, is, is my recollection. So he was doing some experimental, uh, you know, trying to find some experimental things to help with disease because disease was rampant and life spans were short in that setting so uh, I think in my recollection is he took a vaccine and got sicker and, and not better and he ended up dying young he's only like 50 52 something like that and so you can learn a lot about him there's a whole lot there's a whole wing at, at Yale but he was a contemporary of this guy George Whitfield but he would be like a, what we would consider like a church planting uh, missionary uh, to the new world at that time uh, and it only took you know a few generations uh, the economy was rolling, as you know. The resources were rich. The money was going, but the hearts were cold. And so this, these, uh, this first great awakening came from the preaching of guys like George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards preaching sinners in the hands of an angry God, a guy, a guy who wakes up and says, you know what? The people in my church are just here because their parents were here. These people are not saved. They're not regenerate. They're trusting their baptisms. They're trusting their, 
their, their membership in the church, they don't know Jesus. You know, so he starts preaching the gospel the best he knew how. And, uh, man, he got some results. And so, and eventually John and Charles Wesley get saved. And, of course, uh, that starts the Methodist movement. And that all prompted the, uh, with all of that, which starts with your English Bible, uh, starts the modern missions movement. And I don't have time to get into all of it, and I've touched on some of those already. Uh, but, like, William Carey came along, uh, the golden age of missions, um, and uh, he ended up going to, well, he was a Baptist in, in Great Britain, and uh, he, he, he had the audacity to say, look, the Bible says, go ye therefore and teach all nations. And, and that doesn't just mean the 12 apostles, that means us. We should be getting the, the gospel where it needs to go on time, as I say all the time. And so he got a lot of resistance. And, and his writing, he, he, he was a shoe cobbler, but he was pretty, pretty eloquent. So he, his uh, message to, um, uh, to the Baptist was, is recorded in the mission board. And um, he exhorted them to, you know, to be faithful. And, of course, he ended up doing that himself. Uh, if nobody else was going to go, he went. So um, he, had, he was influenced by an American missionary named David Brainerd who really didn't get a lot of traction here. He died in the wilderness trying to reach American Indians at a very young age. Uh, but he read his journal and um, The Last Voyage of Captain Cook. And, and those books um, just helped him understand the, the human need. He, by him, he also mastered Latin and Greek and Hebrew and Italian by the age of 21 and was working on French and Dutch. He was a, a cobbler by trade. Uh, can you imagine that? He's just a shoe dude. He's over here working on your boots by day, but he can read Latin, Greek, Hebrew. I mean, he's brilliant. Um, and so uh, it's amazing. So <clears throat> this is what he said. He, he heard a call from God. He said, if it be the duty of all men to believe the gospel, then it is the duty of those who are entrusted with the gospel to endeavor to make it known to all nations. He really got saved. It took. And so at that time, there was no missionary societies getting to the field. So that was a problem, and he spoke with ministers in meetings uh, whether the command given to the apostles to teach to all nations was obligatory on all succeeding ministers to the end of the world, seeing that the accompanying promise uh, was equal to that extent, right? Lo, I will be with you all the way even to the end of the world. So he would challenge them and say, well, if that was with the apostles, why doesn't that apply to us? Because it says until the end of the world, so shouldn't we be carrying that out as well? And, of course, he got some pushback on that, and uh, and so... Um, and so uh, when he said that, he was rebuked by a, a gentleman named Dr. Ryland who replied, Young man, sit down. Uh, when God is ple- uh, pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. And so because they believed in that sovereignty of God, if God wants to save him, he'll save him, right? Irresistible grace and total depravity, right? All that. that see, and so, uh, so he was like saying, wait a minute. That's not what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? And so um, he continued on the, and wrote a book called Inquiry into Obligations of Christians to Use Means for Conversion of the Heathen. One of those short titles that you see on the front of a book, right? So it's like three sentences long. So he, he answered the arguments, surveyed the history of missions, did a survey of the entire world, and dealt with practical applications on how to reach the world for Christ. And then he preached his message, Accept great th- expect great things from God, attempt great things for God, which you've probably heard many times. The result was the formation of the Baptist Missionary Society in 1792. That wasn't that long ago, really, when you think about it. And uh, just a little over 200 years ago. And 
Even though he could not contribute, he became the first missionary sent to India in 1793. He had no converts for seven years, but kept plodding on. And by the time he died, he saw the country of India open for missions and had seen many converts for Christ. He also saw the scriptures translated and printed into 40 languages. On his deathbed, he said, Dr. Duff, you have been speaking about Dr. Carey. When I'm gone, say nothing of Dr. Carey. Speak about Dr. Carey's God. And so uh, to this day, I personally know people that have been impacted by this guy. These guys that went in that age are still making amazing inroads. The, the Nepali Bible that we printed here uh, started with this guy's work. The Burmese Bible that we got, have printed here and published from this place started from Judson's work. Judson went to work with Kerry and then ended up over in Burma, which isn't too far away. So it's amazing what God's done. I could talk more about the Moravians. I could talk about Judson who went to Burma. Uh, I could talk about David Livingston that went to Africa and uh, all of those things, but I'm going to just pause there. Uh, and I could also talk about guys like Doug Pearson and, uh, you know, and uh, many others that have gone that we're supporting him today. I just got a missionary prayer letter from Kael Horvath. And there's still that, that fire is still going on in our, in our circle of churches because we take this stuff literally. All right, let me pause there, take a breath. Are there any, I want to just kind of run through some of that church history in, the, in that time period because I didn't get a chance to do that. And I think it, it's, that's just, and by the way, that is like skipping a rock. Across, across a couple hundred years there. But, but those stories you may find boring, I don't know. But I just, I'm inspired uh, by those guys. So if you're not, it's probably because I didn't deliver it properly. But, uh, man, I tell you what, those, those dudes are, they fire me up when I read about them. Uh, and, and Hudson Taylor, I didn't even touch on Hudson Taylor in China. Um, and there's others that are unnamed, unknown. Amazing works that went on uh, during those times. So uh, we're still working and we're still building as a, uh, oh, uh, Brother Mike Van Horn said, right, we're entering into other men's labors. Uh, a lot of what we do today is just entering into other men's labors. Uh, there are a lot of things that have been plowed by this Philadelphian church age. So it's, if we were good stewards, we would just go in and keep working the soil. All right, so let me see. I've got to get back to my notes. Let's take, our, let's take a look at Laodicea and see how far we can get on that tonight. So now we're, we have, uh, we've looked at Philadelphia, we've read over Laodicea, and, uh, oh, it's back up, praise the Lord. So we can understand the time frame. The Laodicean church age begins around the end of the 19th century and ends when the church is raptured, uh, which we don't know the date, any day now, any moment. And so uh, that marks the entrance of the world into the time period known as the tribulation, uh, and that church age is the last period of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Recently, some people have had problems with calling the whole seven years tribulation, so just so I don't mess anyone up, it's Daniel's 70th week. First half is the beginning of sorrows, last half is the great tribulation according to Jesus Christ in Matthew 24. Okay, um, and so um, interestingly enough, <coughs> how do we mark it uh, at the beginning of the 1900s? Well, of course, it has to do with the Bible, and we'll get to that a little bit more as we move forward. So the, the Laodicean period marks the time of the closed door. So you have 180-degree opposite thing, or opposite of uh, contrast to what you see in Revelation chapter 3. There's the key of David, and there's a door that, that, that the Lord opens that no man can shut, and shut that no man can open. But when you get over to Revelation chapter 3 um, and verse 20, you see that, I, that the Lord himself is standing at the door knocking, 
And if any man hear his voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. This isn't a door that God's opening. This is a door that we need to open. We've, you know, we've shut the door to the Lord. We're not opening up this book. And we're not getting with God. We're not fellowshipping with God like we need to in Laodicean church. We're replacing it with music, replacing it with, oh, my goodness. I just was listening to a message on the radio. I just literally was like, this is disgusting. It was a false gospel, works-based gospel. It sounded so good, though. It was just so it was just so motivational. It was all about your effort, being the best you that you can be and all this other baloney. And it had nothing to do with redemption through the blood of Christ, dealing with sin, none of that. And uh, it was just horrible, actually. But it sounded good. tickled my ear for a minute until I started listening to it. And I'm like, wait a minute. This is, this is totally humanistic. This has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. That's the kind of preaching you get in Laodicea. It's, it's horrible. Um, and so the Laodicean period uh, marks that time period of the closed door. So Jesus is on the outside of his church, um, not, on the, not on the inside, right? He's on the outside. And this is the most perilous time in church history, more perilous than the dark ages. Um, and so what, what could be more perilous than thinking you know God than open up your eyes in hell, right? That's terrible. That's, that's terrifying. I've got 2 Timothy 3, 1 there. It says, this is a true saying. If any man desire, wait a minute. Yeah, if any man desire the office of a bishop, he desire a good work. I don't think that's the verse that we're supposed to have there. So, um, I got a bad reference. Oh, that's 1 Timothy 3.1. That's why. 2 Timothy 3.1. It's the preacher's fault, not the notes. This, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. We'll keep working this passage in uh, 2 Timothy 3. So in Luke 17, uh, 26 through 32, uh, let's just turn over there and have a look-see at that. <clears throat> I turned right to that. Hallelujah. In verse 26, it says, And it was, not, it was in the days of Noah, as it was in the days of Noah, uh, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. Uh, they did eat and they drank. They married wives and then were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So what was happening? Well, they were, they were living it up. Everything was just going on forward and they totally missed the fact that God's judgment was about to fall. They didn't believe that. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day the, the Lord uh, went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So that's pretty, that's pretty powerful preaching right there, uh, pretty convicting. It goes on to say, um, in, that, in that day he which shall be in the housetop, verse 31, and his stuff in the house, let him come... Uh, not come down to take it away, and he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Remember Lot's wife, right? That's the admonition. And uh, now that's dealing with the second coming, um, not the the catching away of the church, the rapture of the church. But uh, when we are pulled out, like the like the Lord mentions there in, in uh, Sodom, when the angel left, man, then the that same day that it says that that Lot went out of Sodom, when when uh, the justified man Lot, right, left. Fire came down. And uh, when we leave, it's coming. The, the judgment's coming. This world's going to get what it wants, and it's not going to be Jesus for about seven years. So the second coming will be as in the days of Noah. And you can go back and read Genesis 5, 6. But Enoch is taken out before judgment. Uh, the people were going about their business, right? They just, I mean, you have this guy building a boat, 
It's never rained. What's a boat for? I mean, it's like, what is that? What are you doing? Well, you know, God of, the God of uh, Adam told me that uh, it's going to rain. There's going to be a flood, and the whole world's going to be covered in water. And they're like, ha, they've been saying that for centuries. Remember that guy, Enoch? He said he was going to come back with his armies. He ain't come back yet. That's just a bunch of old Bible stories. That's the kind of stuff I used to hear when I was growing up. Oh, they've been saying that for years. Jesus is coming back. I'd heard about the second coming of Christ, but until I read it from the Bible itself, it didn't penetrate me. Because when I literally opened up the Bible and read chapter 5, chapter 6, I was like, uh-oh, I'm on the wrong team. I can see that very clearly. I need to get saved. And so uh, even though I didn't know how, God brought someone to show me. But praise God for that. So people were going about their business, you know, and then the flood came. The ark represents how Israel will be preserved through the pending judgment on the earth. And that's absolutely what's going to happen. God, In the midst of all that, God's going to redeem Israel. And even though they have slayed their Messiah, uh, God will help them understand that they missed him, according to Zechariah. And then they will repent, and God will uh, restore and keep the promises that he's always promised them. So today, a big theology point in Laodicea, uh, which makes zero sense because all the prophecy that's occurred throughout the Laodicean church age, uh, is that Israel has been replaced by the church. It's called replacement theology. That's also a Reformed position by most people of Reformed theology. So uh, the second coming will be as the days of Lot is also mentioned, which is Genesis 18 through 19. Uh, Now that's a time of militant gay rights. So, you know, it's not just some dudes. Like when I was a kid, um, you know, sexual, uh, homosexual perversion, you know, sexual perversion in the form of homosexuality was like kind of like, you know, the odd couple, the guy's light in his loafers, you know, effeminate limp-wristed, all that other stuff that we used to, you know, kind of kind of categorize homosexual behavior as. But since I've gotten saved even in the last 30 years or so, uh, you can see that that's becoming, uh, it's not about homosexual behavior, it's about sexual perversion, which is against God. It's just humans left to themselves, and it's getting more militant, right? If you, it's, they're becoming evangelistic, and, and, and uh, not with any grace. They're like Calvin, right? You believe what I say or you're gone. And so very militant uh, gay rights, which you saw happen in Judges, right? So at night uh, in Judges, they take the, the man's wife and abuse her, uh, the, the sexual perverts. I uh, forget the, the chapter now, but they take her out and abuse her. They're also concerned about sodomites uh, themselves, like, oh, no, come in the house because the sodomites are out at night. And then you also have the same situation in Lot, right? They're, they're wanting to take the angels and, and rape them. I mean, just just violent, like hardcore, you know, penitentiary style, uh, you know, hurting people's souls through sexual perversion. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that uh, is on tap for uh, the uh, time before Jesus Christ comes to this earth and puts a stop to it. Uh, as I remind people, like last Sunday when I was talking about, you know, Abraham, when you think about it, Jesus heard some cries. He heard people crying. And he was coming to check it out. And I don't know who was crying or what they were crying about. So this is me just surmising. I'm just knowing God. You know, I know God and he's nice and gracious. He probably heard some people that were being abused crying. If there is a God, help. You know, uh, my God's not working. Is there a God that can help me? Whatever he was hearing, he, something was, was moving him to, to bring some justice and judgment. And, uh, of course, that's what happened. And Lot got out. So pending judgment was 
was and is coming, and few really believe the word of God. They don't believe the warning. So, like, you know, I could preach prophecy. I could preach whatever, but people just don't care anymore. You notice that? They just don't really care. I mean, gosh, you can go to the movies and watch. You can watch The Winter Soldier, and people get to go. They get to go away or whatever that movie is. People get raptured in that. Just Marvel. Let's just go watch some Marvel. You know, that's more entertaining. It's got more bells and whistles. The Bible's not a big deal. That's Laodicea. You know, instead of trying to compare, and, you know, a lot of times, and it's, it's a tool. I mean, definitely, there's a lot of typology in the movies and stuff like that, and you can use it to teach people. That was really popular back in 2000 when we first started the church. I was, you know, kind of into some of that, using movie clips and stuff. Nothing wrong with that stuff. But at the end of the day, that's not going to save anybody. The only thing that's going to save somebody is having a very good understanding of the Word of God. And you don't get that by just a casual read or just listening to the preacher talk. There has to be a movement beyond reading to studying. That's why Heartland is about making disciples. That is uh, not unusual in our fellowship of churches. We're all about teaching people the Word of God and teaching people how to teach themselves through Bible study principles and, and discipline, which is teaching in itself. The word discipline implies teaching, uh, and uh, not beating people, but teaching people. Um, and so we got to be disciplined, and, and that's what, like when if you become an engineer or an architect, that's your discipline. That's what your study is, right? You're disciplined in that. You've learned it. And so we have to be, go beyond just casually approaching the Bible. We have to actually take time to read it, to think about it, to study it, to, to, to meditate upon it, to give ourselves wholly to it. That's, that's lacking increasingly in the Laodicean church age. And so... Uh, where that's happening, you're going to see revival because God blesses that. It's just going to happen. So, uh, point C there. The beginning of the Laodicean period coincides with the introduction of the modern Bible version, translated, <clears throat> versions translated from corrupt texts uh, to trace back to Alexandria, Egypt. Oh, sorry. Wait, where am I at? Did I leave off all that? Sorry, guys. You guys got all that in your notes, right? Yeah. So you got it. Okay, so here we are. Let's see what else we have. Okay, so there's new versions that come out at a rate of approximately 12 per year. <clears throat> I did, a few years ago, I did a sermon series on this. And, and I just actually just watched a, a, some real smart Alex uh, on YouTube the other day. Um, you know, take guys like me and throw me under the bus, which is fine. It's a fair fight. But at the end of the day, it's about the, the, the issue of preservation. Can and does God preserve his word? Yes or no? That's the issue. That's it. And I believe he does. I believe he says he does in Psalm chapter 12 and uh, in other places. I mean, Paul believed it. He told Timothy he had the word of God, um, not a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. And so he had the words of God. God gave him his words. So I believe God preserves his words. Um, and so there's many today that don't. And if you do believe that he does actually preserve his word uh, in your language, then you are a little bit crazy. So it's what they would tell you, um, but I believe it anyway. So uh, the, initially, we touched on this last week, the, a, the uh, ESV, the ASV came out around 1900. Almost all new versions are compared to the King James as being easier to understand. However, most of them aren't. If everyone could understand it, then um, it wouldn't be God's book. And what do I mean by that? I'm glad you asked. So look at 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It deals with the mind of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, down here in verse 12, he says, 
Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but with which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Uh, with spiritual. So that's how you learn the Bible. You compare it with itself. Uh, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can they know them, because they are spiritually discerned. All right, so we compare Scripture with Scripture to know what the Scripture actually says because it's God's book and it's congruent from Genesis to Revelation. And when it's not, God's teaching us something because we believe God preserves His Word. And um, some say, well, that's circular reasoning. However, I tell you, it's hard to find a lot of the doctrine that we, that we hold fast to outside of, the, of this Bible because once you start monkeying with the words, words mean things, and you start to lose things, and you start to realize that, wow, Acts chapter 8, that verse is missing. First John chapter 5, that, that, that says that Jesus isn't, uh, these, the Godhead isn't one. Uh, and so there's things missing, things twisted, things out of sorts. Um, that's because not everybody that's involved in that uh, process is really sincere about translating the word. They want to manipulate it. And so if it was just a matter of sincerely translating it, then I suppose that you, you could abide that. Unfortunately, most of the time, that's not the situation. If you produce 12 new books a year, what are you going to do with them? You're going to publish them. When you publish them, what are you going to do? You're going to make money off of them. So it behooves you to continuously monkey around with things so that you can continue to make the money. And uh, that's ultimately what ends up happening. So the church, the church age is marred by materialism. In addition to that, uh, it's marred by materialism and intellectualism. Uh, and, and intellectualism just follows on the heels of really the 1800s, the end of that Philadelphian church age. That was really going on long before the 1900s. And so that's what started the fundamental movement. Was, was, a, was a response to rationalism, not being rational, but rationalism, um, which, which relies on human intellect over the Word of God <clears throat> and, and humanism. And getting back to what we just saw, the natural man uh, driving what was true instead of the Bible. And so the church, the, the church age is marred uh, by that materialism and intellectualism. The line between right and wrong is blurred, and what's wrong is right and what's right is wrong. Even... With all this wealth, most of the world's population still lives in poverty. So obviously then what we should do is redistribute wealth, right? No, of course not. We know what happens. You can't, why can't you? Let me ask you, why can't you redistribute wealth? Why can't we just all get along and... and... That's right. Men are corrupt. There's a reason. There's a reason some are rich and some are poor. Now, I'm not saying that everybody that's rich is virtuous by any stretch, and certainly not those that, the, those that are poor are uh, not because they um, are corrupt. Uh, oftentimes, they're victims. But the real issue is that you can't trust humans. That's why it's going to take Jesus coming back to establish a benevolent dictatorship on the planet to get things to, to be equitable. And so uh, that's why the best thing for man is the Word of God and people being changed from the inside out and, and charity. The world can't get their head around that. And certainly we should be concerned about poverty. We should be concerned about disparities in society and all those things. I spent a decade of my life in a mission preaching to homeless people. But you know, a lot of the problems with homeless is, is moral injuries and broken families. It's not because there's not resources in America. This is the richest nation in the world. Why are there still homeless people? Well, because they are hurt. They are messed up, a lot of them. 
A lot of them are war veterans that can never get out of the, the PTSD. They didn't know what PTSD was. Some of them are, uh, you know, there's all kinds of issues that you come across. Some just sin, right? They're just whatever. But a lot of them know broken homes, don't know how to function in society. Whatever the case, it's a lack of Jesus. It's a lack of Jesus Christ and what God intends for people. All right, so um, materialism isn't going to fix it anyway. It's got to start with Jesus. All right, so... Uh, and then you get to point E. This is a time that's marked with an incredible volume of techno- technological advances. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, we have increased our ability to kill each other, uh, you know, with each uh, update more efficiently. And so there are two great, uh, the two greatest wars ever fought uh, were during this time, World War One and World War Two, And uh, we have the ability to unite as human beings through advanced uh, communications and travel, as everyone knows. And, uh, and both of these are prophesied in the word of God in regard to the end times. So, uh, and even in Daniel, it talks about the jostling of cars in the streets and all of those things in uh, chapter 11. So both of these, uh, you know, they could be working for good, but they're not because, well, because well, we should listen to Greta Thornburg. No, not because of that, um, because, because we haven't gotten the gospel where it needs to go. We in America right now are looking to government. You can totally see that. It's like, oh, the government, especially the younger generation. They actually expect the government to deliver something that's going to be a solution. That's new. For old people like me that are over 50 now, uh, I still remember a time when you didn't expect anything from the government. You took care of yourself because that was the way it was. You know, you weren't like looking like, oh, the government owes me something. It was more like, no, go ahead and get a standing army going, build some good roads and bridges, and we'll be good. <laughs> get off me. And, uh, and so that's totally changing because it's becoming, uh, because people are looking for a Savior, and they're not looking to Christ to save them. So they seem completely, uh, they feel completely helpless. Uh, okay, so this time is marked. Um, this is also a time of great apostasy in so-called Christianity. As I mentioned earlier, the churches are abounding, or uh, uh, the churches are, abandoning, not abounding, abandoning sound doctrine in an effort to be appealing uh, to the masses. And some of that's very much just pragmatism. Uh, you feel the pressure. I can tell you this, man, I'm so glad I'm, that we are an independent fundamental church, and I'm glad, although many of my independent fundamental brothers would totally disagree with me because we have drums and whatever, but whatever. And I'm not wearing a suit tonight, but praise God, I'm not worried about it. Um, the, but I'm glad we're free, and we're in Cass County, and we're not even in city limits. I mean, we're, we have the best possible, I'm, not, I'm afraid to even say it out loud. I know, I'm like, don't listen on the YouTube. But uh, we, are, we, are, we are, you know, hope the man's not listening, but this is the best place. And I'm think, in God's providence, I'm like, thank you, Jesus, for putting us out in a cow field in Cass County, because we have a lot more liberty than a lot of our brothers in the United States. I mean, I, I got friends. I talk to them. I mean, it is not as, they're not as, they're still, I still have friends that are still battling like mask mandates and all that other stuff in their church. Stuff that we were dealing with in the summer of 19 uh, or whatever, 20, whenever that was. And, uh, and, and they're still having to wrestle with all that stuff. I mean, they're just not, they're not at liberty like we are. And that's sad. Um, and so, anyway. Um, so um, the more and more churches are realizing that their their ancestry is Roman is the Roman Catholic Church. Now I don't say that as a fact. I'm saying that that's the mindset. Uh, that you know what? So let me give you a practice. I wish I had the clip. Maybe next week. Let me mark this down so I don't forget. Uh, 
Huh? I'm not here next week. That's right. The week when I come back, I need to remind Mark. Mark's up next week. Mark's up to bat. Um, where am I at? i got to make a note here. More and more. Oh, this one right here. I will run you a clip that you just got to see. So on this very point about more and more churches realizing that their ancestry is the Roman Catholic Church. I'll give you the, just the little tease. So you got, how many of you know who Francis Chan is? Okay, so a few of you. He's a real popular um, uh, pastor from out in California. Very engaging. He had a book called uh, Crazy Love back a few years ago. Comes from a Baptist background initially. Uh, a Southern Baptist, but Baptistic background. I'll tell you what, the train's coming off the tracks of that dude. I mean, he is all things all men, that by all means he might beguile some, including himself. Um, and so he's got this way of doing the talking to people that just just draws them in, you know. And he just talk, you know, he just he's this very engaging fellow. But uh, so, you know, a few years ago, I think I probably had that book in this church. There's probably one in the library, uh, Crazy Love or whatever it was. I don't know. And that guy today, I'll show you a clip next week. So you think you might think, Brian, you're crazy. I'm telling you, I'm not the crazy one. This guy is sitting down with um, Hank Hanegraaff and um, Gospel. uh, Oh gosh, what's the name of it? World, uh, who also went off the rails big time. He never really was on the rails, but everyone thought he was. KP Yohannan, and they're all sitting around the table. Hank Hanegraaff, who's the Bible Answer Man. Francis Chan and K.P. Yohanan, Mr. World Missions in Asia, you know, Gospel for Asia. He wrote that book and transformed modern missions again, right? Not really. Um, and so those three dudes are sitting around a table. And this just happened last year. And they're seriously talking about how we should embrace the Eucharist. Oh, yeah. I'll run the clip for you. It sounds unbelievable. Huh? The Eucharist. Yeah. How we should embrace the Eucharist. Yeah. And so when I, I leave it at that point, right, going back to Rome, it's totally ecumenical. Now, Hank Hanegraaff, is, he believes in, uh, he's a true reformer, meaning that he comes out of the Roman Catholic Church. And that's why when you listen to his show for the last 30 years, I've been listening to it. I don't listen to it anymore, but I used to years ago. Um, it troubled me long before he came out of the closet that he would always say, um, according to historical Christian orthodoxy, which means according to church history. So he would say that, and I would be like, I like church history. But then I would think, wait a minute. I don't base, if I just base my, what I believe on what church history says, I'd be taking the Eucharist, right? Uh, if I'm reading Philip Schaff's book. So, so uh, before he came out of the closet as a all-millennialist or post-millennialist, whichever, I think he's all-millennial, um, uh, you know, I was already kind of like going, why, Hank, why don't you just say this is what the Bible says? According to what the Bible says. He's supposed to be the Bible answer man, but he's really the historical Christian orthodoxy answer man. That's how he addresses every answer. I mean, listen to him sometime. Historical Christian orthodoxy. And that's impressive. I'm like, man, I, I need to get out some money for this. This is expensive. I mean, that's a big word, historical Christian orthodoxy. I can't even pronounce all that. And so, um, and so, of course, orthodox teaching would be the standard teaching of church history is what he's saying. But at the end of the day, 
uh, all these guys end up in 2020 or whenever that was recorded, sitting around a table saying, you know what, we should all just go back to reefers. We should really consider that. And, uh, and the mystical meaning of the Lord's Supper. And I'm like, holy moly, uh, that's unholy moly. Yes, ma'am. What's that? The Eucharist? Okay, Eucharist, thank you. The Eucharist is, uh, is the view that Rome has. It's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a Protestant or a, well, it could be Protestant. Most Protestants reject the Eucharist. No evangelicals receive it, or they shouldn't, except these guys I'm talking about now. So they used to not receive it. So the Eucharist is the, the belief that the wafer, which is really just a cake to Diana, well, I won't get into that, but the, the wafer that the Rome, that Rome in particular teaches is that when the priest says hocus pocus or whatever in Latin, it turns that into the body of Christ and they eat it, and that's what, it's the process that saves you. Christ is in you when you take the Eucharist, meaning the bread, which is the opposite of what, what the Bible teaches, which Jesus is the bread of life. So we take unleavened bread because it's a picture. They teach that you need to take the Eucharist to be saved. It's part of your salvation. It's a sacrament. So you need to take the Eucharist to be saved. That's why you should do it weekly, daily, you know, so Christ is in you. And that it literally turns into the body of Christ. It's very literal. So when the bell rings, have you ever been to a Catholic Mass? So when the bell rings, it turns into the body of Christ. And then you drink the blood of Christ. So you're like a cannibal at that point, you know. I mean, technically. And so so that's just like flatly, we would say biblically, no. No, no. We're, no. That's not, Jesus is the bread of life. This is an ordinance. That was unleavened bread because it's a tight, you know, the whole picture that we believe here. And so these guys like, like Hannah Graf and Johanan and, and uh, these guys would have been in that same place that we are. And somehow, magically, after a decade or so of being famous, now they're sitting around saying, you know, there's something to the historical, mystical union together in the Eucharist. You know? I'll, I'll run the clip for you. And uh, it's fascinating. So anyway, I've ran out of time. Um, and I'm, let me get this little last third thing in and we'll be done for tonight, or fourth thing. Um, so through it all, God is still faithful. Bible preachers and teachers who have not sold out or traded their sharp two-edged sword. There's plenty of people out there. You know, it's not as bad as even when uh, Elijah was like, there's nobody left. But uh, I will tell you, I felt like that for a few years before we had our Living Faith Fellowship kind of come on board. And, and then I realized there's a lot of people out there and even growing in some respects. So praise God for that. But God is still at work saving people and uh, raising up godly people in a lot of churches. So I don't want you guys to think, oh, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. I mean, well, well, really, we're getting ready to go up to the sky. So uh, anyway, but uh, yeah, I don't want to be negative, but what are you going to do? Uh, in the last days, perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves. That's when we live. So let me just wrap this up because I'm over time now. But at the end of the day, when it comes right down to Revelation chapter 3, each and every one of us has to make a decision that that's not going to be us. It's, it's really the church. It's interesting how the church of Laodicea really delves it with the personal aspect of, hey, who? Who is going to open the door? It's not just like generically. What church body is going to open the door? It starts, for me, this message starts with Brian. Am I going to open the door? Am I going to sup with Jesus in this book daily? Am I or am I not? Am I going to fake it to make it? 
Am I really going to meet with Jesus? That's all. It's, I mean, it's really not any more complex than that. Who's meeting with Jesus in this room right now? How many of us are meeting with Jesus daily? I hope all of us. You know, I would lay odds that many people who aren't here aren't meeting with Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what do you say? Huh? Oh, you're meeting with Jesus. You're saying amen. All right. I really wasn't expecting a hand raise because I don't want to embarrass anybody who's not. So anyway, uh, it's so easy, though. You could replace the Bible with social media. I'm not even talking about sinful things. You can replace it with entertainment. Uh, whatever is ahead of God, is what is it? It's an idol. Idolatry rules in Laodicea. So really what we got to do is reassess what idolatry is and take anything or anyone that's ahead of God and put it down. Put it behind. Jesus, then others and yourself, right? Joy is found there. We just got to say, wait a minute. We're becoming idolatrous, self-centered. So let's put God first, and then it'll be like a chiropractic adjustment. Everything else just will get in place. And it's, so, it's not that complex, but we make it complicated because, well, human philosophy rules in this church age, as you guys know. And uh, that's, you know, how many of us don't sit around and scratch our head and go, am I, am I living in reality? Are we seriously talking about this now? I mean, there's so many things. I preached a message. I know I'm going long, but I got to tell you, I preached a message several years ago. And I said this. I said, and back then, this has been a long, we just came in the building. And I was talking about the seven realities and talking about institutions and how people don't trust institutions. And I brought up a situation at UMKC where a man, a a, a professor, this is, you can go back and study this on the internet. It's still out there in in the news reports. It made national world news. A professor at UMKC said, we should really make space in our educational environment uh, to allow for, you know, the consideration of pedophilia. Well, people, most people were like, uh, you're crazy, man. No way. And, the, and then in ed- educational circles, including at UMKC, people were, you know, they were like, what are you talking about, you pervert? You know, why? why? What? We protect children. We do, I mean, naturally. I mean, you don't have to be a saved person, right? Even a lost man knows how to give good things to their kids. So nobody in their right mind, saved or lost, is going to abide that. And I preached that. When I was preaching that little message, I mentioned that. Said, that's, at that time, that was crazy. But I, was, I, I remember mentioning, you know what, when I was in 1970, it was crazy to be homosexual. And you wait 20 years from now, and it's, we're about probably 10 or 15 in, people are going to look at pedophilia and go, well, you know, or bestiality. Oh, well, you know. Each two. Yeah. Pedophiles. Yeah. It's just because it's crazy. It seems crazy. But that's what happens when you lose your standard. And, uh, and now you're going to be called crazy. Like right now, I'm intolerant, right? Because, hey, I love everybody, even pedophiles. But you know what? There's got to be boundaries, man. Even Freud would tell you that. And he was a nutball. And so, come on. Anyway, all right, I'm done. I quit preaching, went to meddling somewhere along the way. And uh, we're talking about Laodicea. We'll come back to it in a couple weeks. Thank you for your time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.